Welcome to OVS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 52, which means that we're finally playing with the full deck. This episode is an interview with Greg Farrow. If you're listening to this podcast, you've almost certainly heard of the Packet Pushers podcast that Greg hosts. Even if you haven't, then Greg introduces himself better than I can at the beginning of the episode. So, on to the interview. Uh, welcome to the OVS Orbit podcast. Uh, I'm uh, very happy uh, to be here today with uh, Greg Farrow from the Packet Pushers. Um, I, I, I feel really special having a you know an A-list podcaster on my uh, D-list <laughs> podcast. Uh, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> my, my guess is that uh, everybody who listens to OVS Orbit has already heard of Greg. But Greg, do you want to say anything more about yourself? Uh, what do I describe myself as? I describe myself as a as a survivor of 25 years in enterprise IT. Uh, somebody who's worked at the end user space. I've never worked for a vendor, and uh, I did. Uh, and it's been 20 years since I worked for a reseller. So I did the first 10, 15 years of my career selling, you know, taking vendor ouvroir and then distributing it on the fields of customer needs, shall we say. And you got out alive. <laughs> more or less, probably less rather than more. Um, I do remember that uh, there was a point back when Packet Pushes was just starting to, you know, we, we'd managed to, be, we'd been doing it for five years and published like 300 shows or, uh, or something like that. Like there was a critical point around show 200 where it was really like the burden of what we'd been doing had reached its maximum pain threshold. And um, Ethan and I, I walked out of a contract which had just earned, you know, exhausted me working for a customer. And I thought, I need a break. I need to take a break. And uh, what I decided to do was go home and start, you know, just take a few months off and I'll work packet pushes and it'll give me a small income, but they won't. So we won't be going backwards, but we won't be going forwards. And, and it turns out, as soon as we started doing the podcast full time, it just blew up. And just, you know, we worked more on the content, more on the research, following up the vendors, talking, you know, just more blogging, more whatever. And it just took off. And that's uh, basically where. We got lucky. I was able to make a lifestyle choice to walk away from enterprise IT and be, and focus on the podcast, and it just took off. Wow. I, I think everyone uh, has, has these moments where they think, uh, could, could I just walk out of uh, what I'm doing as my day job and, and, and turn something else that I really enjoy into my day job? And it sounds like you actually did it. Yeah, we did. Um, we spent five years. So we started... Do you want to hear this? Is this interesting? Uh, let's start out with this. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to sort of turn it into a promo. Um, so it sort of was, Ethan and I started it in May 2010 because we really wanted to share back. So both of us really felt strongly that we were, you know, had been the beneficiary of all these years of experience and training and um, neither he or I had the ability to pass it on to somebody else. So many organizations we work for really only had one networking person, one, maybe two people. So there was no one to pass the knowledge on you. We there was no mentoring that was possible. And the way that we felt we could mentor best was blogging. And we both started blogging in, like I started in 2008, and he'd been going since 2004 or five. And we decided that we'd start this podcast. And so we did. And then, you know, four years later, 200 shows you know, and all, and and we went through the social. We got lucky in that the social media thing. You know, like the the bloggers 
and the, and the vendors would you know wanted to reach out to the bloggers and the influencers and the social media people and and we got we were there at that time we went right through it so uh, yeah it was all it's still and remains to this day it's all about giving back the goal of the podcast is to give more away than we take oh wow that, that's really cool yeah so that's that's kind of the feeling is that um, the more we give away the more to our audience which our audience is our customer. Um, then the more they give back, the more time they spend listening to us, and that's what we need. And we can take that attention and give that to vendors, but what we do is make the vendors respect you and your time. So when you listen to the packet pushes, hopefully the, when the vendors open their mouths, it's actually not just some sort of sales spiel or, or just some shilling or you know transparent can't I just have the purchase order now without trying any harder sort of stuff. It's much more like, you know, this is the reason, here's our thinking, this is what the logic is. And that's kind of when we got how we got here. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, and uh, your, your show uh, and a few others were kind of the inspiration for uh, this, this podcast here. Mm. Um, I really enjoyed uh, listening uh, the, the, to the discussion, the interviews about networking, but it's not the same kind of networking that I do. And uh, there, there were also a lot of people who would come and ask me questions, and I'd, uh, and I'd, I'd talk to them about you know, what, I'd, what I'd discussed with other people. Mm. Uh, but I always figured it'd be better if I could just get those whole discussions uh, recorded yeah. and, and pass them along to people. And so it's, it's giving, right? You're yeah. mentoring, you're helping. There's a whole, by living in your world, I, there are people who can get insight about what you do. And um, that was where we started. It's changed over time because obviously we're less practitioners now and you know in a different field. But that's what it's all about. That's what blogging is. It's about sharing your experience, partly because you want to share it, mostly because, and in the hope that someone else will find it useful. And, yeah. So if if you spend most of your time uh, on the podcast, do you, do you still spend time consulting and 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 so on? Uh, how do you how do you keep up with uh, your own field? So I did spend I did in the early days do occasional consulting, but then that means that you go for two months, two weeks, or a month and disappear off, and then you come back, and then of course you've got a production schedule where you're doing, you know, uh, uh, you know we're doing five shows a week now or more. So it's not incredibly practical to run away for a month and then you have to sort of... So I do less and less consulting and less and less hands-on now. But you know what? The secret about networking has been, at least in my career, I've been a designer or an architect or a, the, the person who comes along in the project and helps, you know, what should I buy? Why should I buy it? Where does it fit? What does it do? And that's less about you know, wearing your fingers down to bloody little stumps on a command line interface and much more about this is the general purpose of this BGP design or we could use MPLS here or we could use, you know, whatever it is. So I think the key here is that in a podcast I can't teach you how to use a command line or I can't educate you. I can't talk about, you know, if you're talking about programming or you're talking about, you know, how BGP works, that's for a textbook. You should go and get a textbook or a training course. And podcasts are much more about ephemeral or emotional or um, bigger picture stuff. So, you know, there's training courses with vendors for the technical stuff or YouTube videos for detailed stuff. But a podcast should open up your mind to um, options and choices. So what we do is go and talk to the vendors about their different technologies. So, for example, SD-WAN is all the hotness right now. Everybody's, like, rubbing their hands together. 
And so we have been fortunate enough to talk to like 12 or 14 different vendors over the time, and they've all come and presented their stories, and they're all iterating their products. And now you've actually got the SDN vendors going in different places. So it's actually more useful to talk about, you know, VeloCloud is doing federated overlays while Viptel is being integrated into the Cisco line and focusing on the routing and the, you know, the load balancing algorithms. But over here we've got Riverbed integrating their branch breakout with Xerus Wi-Fi and Zscaler for security monitoring, you know, and over here is Silverpeak being able to do uh, load balancing of voice over P, voice over voice over IP over multiple circuits. So it's got some unique features. One of which is I can transmit the VoIP down two circuits at the same time. And when I get to the other end, I'll dedupe. You know, so those things. You, if you want to thinking about buying an SD WAN solution, those are the sorts of things you want to be thinking about. If that makes sense. Sure. So it's less about how do I configure Silverpeak to do this, or how do I do whatever, and much more about why do I want that. And what is it that I want? Sure. I, I think maybe we're kind of on the same page. I, mm-hmm. I often think of my podcast episodes the same way I do uh, about academic talks at conferences. Mm-hmm. They don't really tell you about something. They, uh, um, they get you interested enough that you go and find out more. Yeah. Give you an entree. So um, sometimes we call it professional development for sure. business speak. You know, if you're a career person and if you were a lawyer, you would go off to classes to find out you know things that trends that are happening in law and you then decide which pieces of law you should be reading that relate to your law practice you know whatever it is so professional development we call it all right uh i'm uh, i'm I'm really interested in in this this uh this sort of stuff uh uh, because you've been doing this so long and so well but i I do want to talk a little bit about uh, networking too Mm -hmm. so uh what i was what i was hoping uh you could uh, uh help me to to think about is so I work on virtual switches. That, that's, what, uh, that's what this podcast is about, is mm. virtual software switches and so on. I'm curious, um, what kind of an impact, what kind of interest is there in this sort of thing at the enterprise level? Do, are people aware of, uh, of uh, virtual switch software and uh, software switching appliances and, and so on? Um, are they having uh, an impact or an influence? Yes and no. So I think the William Gibson line, you know, the future's here, it's just not evenly distributed. So those who know about it um, are really excited about it. And and I think the primary motivator for most enterprises about overlays is micro-segmentation so that they can, instead of having one big data center that's just got flat, um, you know, layer two domains, and then sometimes there's a router in between them. And, you know, your data center can have maybe prod, pre-prod, and if you're very lucky, you might have another one test. And that's about the limit of your segments, right? right. And maybe they're separate switches or maybe they're separated by uh, VERFs, some sort of, you know, VERF light, some sort of limited layer three isolation. But really all they're doing is sh- shrinking the L2 domains because of the limitations of the physical switches and particularly the fragility of your Ethernet switches, right? You go into your switches and try and configure a you know, a, a layer two domain, there's always a risk that your spanning tree is going to burp and fall over. Or your MPLS is going to, you know, have a, have a bad day. You're going to hit a bug in a BGP stack and it'll fall over. Or maybe just the operating system's not very stable and you'll configure something and the operating system will just fall over. So we've sort of got to the point in the data center where moving the hardware or changing the hardware architecture, the, you know, the tree structure, just isn't possible for fear of, you know, taking down the entire data center. The blast radius is enormous. So for people coming up with this awareness of what 
virtual switching to do this. Microsegmentation is the key story. Now, you were there at the beginning, and microsegmentation was a key sales story when you found it, right? In the early days, you were pushing you know, agility and all these other things, but it was microsegmentation that really bit, got people to bite hard, didn't it? Yeah, that was the key sailing point around the Nasira NSX stuff. And that really has been it. Now, do people in the enterprise know about it? I think they do. I think the NSX marketing push has really, you know, if you're running ESX, I'm pretty sure you know about it. But does the networking guy know about it? I'm not sure that most networking people do yet. So that, that's actually uh, an interesting point. Um, NSX and uh, micro-segmentation more broadly tends to be aimed more at the people running the hosts than people running the network. Um, it, it's almost like an end run by the, uh, the hypervisor admin uh, mm. around the networking team in some ways. It's not, you, it's not so much an end run. Um, the answer is that, for me, most networking engineers spend very little time in the data center, maybe 5% of their time is allocated to the data center because it's pretty much fixed you put some ethernet switches down you patch in a server you put it into a vlan and we spend most of our time working on firewalls wans and campus and wireless the data center actually is a pretty static from a networking point of view isn't something that needs our attention so when the networking guy you know when the esx guy pops down and says i'm going to start doing my own networking we just go Ethernet, port, cable, server, whatever you want, knock yourself out. What do I care, right? And if you're just going to talk between yourselves, fine, you know, whatever. And you want me to? You want to get access to the internet? And you're going to break out at a, a you know, at a, at some point, fine, whatever. I don't care. So, so it's not. It's it's that networking people are busy configuring firewalls and proxy servers and DMZs and load balancers, or out in the campus trying to keep the spanning tree from looping out, or in the Wi-Fi, trying to maintain the wireless space, right? It's a different... The, the data center is not a broken problem in the terms of most enterprises. So if, if, the, uh, if the hypervisor, if the virtualization guy is uh, uh, going off and micro-segmenting, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like uh, they're, they're doing something more advanced that the, the, the networking engineer couldn't really have, take the time to support anyway. Probably not. Probably not, unless you're a data center expert, unless your data center is big enough and ugly enough that you just spend your entire life in the data center land. And I think for most data centers, that's not true. For most companies, that's not true, right? So for those of you who are, well, then the networking person's got a decision to make. Do they get involved in the NSX? Do they skill up? And at the same time, they're then, you know, think about it from their point of view. They might have had, you know, X number of years of working with you know, most likely Cisco switches and LANs, and they've built up a certain amount of expertise around the language of that product. They may have even developed a religion. Uh, the vendor, you know, IT vendors are notorious for developing a religious following or a cult following around their products and their strategies. And they might look at NSX as, I'll leave behind that skill. So I don't want to leave behind skills that have taken me 10 years to earn, so I'll just, if, you know, ignore it or sabotage it is obviously one choice. Sometimes you'll see people go, and this is where the more smarter ones come from, they'll look at NSX and go, or, or an overlay like BGP EVPN, and they'll start saying um, things like, um, well, I'm bored with the last 10 years of networking. This is an opportunity to jump right on in. Why not do that, right? So I've seen both um, sort of, you know, either A, I'm doing nothing, just let them go, B, I'm going to sabotage it because it means abandoning, you know, my network is built this way with this legacy approach. So I only want to work with this 
I've got religion or my, you know, my cult doesn't let me go and use someone else's cult. You know, let's face it, VMware is a, a cult leadership as well. You know, um, or they're either going to go, wow, something new and exciting and leap right in. So I think there's, you know, there's a possibility of lots of different approaches. There's no one answer here, of course. Okay, okay. So uh, that that makes me think about some of the other things that we were we were pushing for NSX uh, when we were, or what was NVP when we were in Nicera, and I, I wonder what your reaction to you know what actually happened to the to these is. Yeah. Like uh, one of the big things was that you've got some physical network with a bunch of routers and switches in it, and you want to uh, move it into a virtual environment. You mm-hmm. need to reproduce that collection of routers and switches and firewalls and everything in your yeah. virtual environment. And that was one of the things we were pushing it for. Has has that happened? Do you, do you see people, people doing that sort of thing? I think people are slowly coming around to the idea there in the sense that you've got to keep in mind that we've got 25 years of building one firewall in the path. And a lot of people haven't yet come to grips with the fact that you, you know, you've got a big firewall and just behind your internet connection and right behind that's a bunch of load balancers and proxy servers and, you know, firewalls. And they've always scaled vertically for 25 years. So when you went from 100 meg internet to 1 gig internet, you went and bought a 1 gig firewall and a 1 gig load balancer and a 1 gig, you know, all the things. Um, and when I've talked to people about using virtual firewalls and virtual load balancers, the challenge here is that networking has always worked on the default route. So you, you, you have all the – so how do you send the traffic – you actually have this complex routing problem in the transition from physical to virtual because when you create the micro-segment, the, you know, the piece of it, you've got to create a default route all the way out to the front. So if you're going to go from, the NSF, from a, from a, from a micro-segment or a separate network and then you're going to have web servers and then you're going to have a firewall maybe and then you're going to give it a public IP and then it's on the network – well, then you've got to duplicate that every time. Well, if you've ever thought about having four physical firewalls in your front end and how you're going to route them and you're going to announce BGP here and then I've got NAT rules, but where's my failover, where's my... People just haven't sat down and thought about it. And interestingly, we don't see any vendor support for that. I don't see vendors publishing you know, reports and white papers saying, use virtual firewalls in your front end instead of one big physical firewall. Like you go and talk to Palo Alto, they're making... You know, look at their share price over the last five years, and guess what they made it out of? And it wasn't virtual firewalls. It was selling bigger and bigger physical firewalls. So, yes, it's possible to do that, but the reality is down on the ground, that message hasn't gotten all the way down. And the reason is possibly money. Remember, when you sell one big physical firewall, you make a big pot of cash on day one, right? So if you're selling a 10-gig firewall, you're probably up to about $750,000 for a pair of them. And if you're a vendor, that's $750,000 that goes straight on the bottom line on day one. None of this wishy-washy $50,000 a year, day, you know, and you get a bit of licensing here and a bit of licensing, and every year you get a bit more. What you actually have is if you transfer to virtual licensing, you actually have this big dip of revenue, and you've got no hardware to sell, and you've got no hardware maintenance contracts to put into your bottom line. And the hardware is very profitable. Very. You're looking at, um, depending on who you're talking to, the gross margin is 65% on most deals for hardware sales and software deals. But more importantly is the cash flow. You get all the cash flow on day one when the sale goes out. The negative side, of course, is if you're a vendor, you have to design that you're up for a fairly substantial cash commitment. So building a new product is, you know, $100 million, $250 million, $500 million for a new firewall product. 
And, you know, that includes research and development, pre-orders, manufacturing, warehouse, distribution. You've got to have a global distribution and then you've got to have spare parts in stock. So, you, you know, if you're selling $100 million worth of x86 servers, you've got to have another $20 million on top to, to buy extras that just sit around in warehouses and rot. Well, maybe, maybe that suggests that uh, if, if this is going to be disrupted, it's going to come from a startup that, that doesn't have... Uh, um, all- doesn't have the cash to uh, yeah. to build these things, and uh, doesn't have that uh, that that cash cow to disrupt anyway. It does, except for the fact that the incumbent vendors have already spent the five hundred million to pump a pri- to prime the, a pipeline around these products, and they don't want to lose that. But they'll have to do it again for the next version. Yes, but they're already halfway through that, and you know the cycle can, in breaking the cu- and and they're always customer focused, so they give the customer what the customer wants. So the customer says, you know, I really like that poop sandwich. Can I have another one? And they don't sort of realise that right next to it is a chicken sandwich if only you knew to ask for a chicken sandwich. So they get the poop sandwich and they go, mmm, tastes just like the last one. Exactly what I wanted. <laughs> All right. So, so that's, the, that, that, that this, this, that's the story for taking virtual or physical stuff and making it virtual. Yeah. You, you said earlier that the, the whole agility story uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't selling well either. Yeah. Uh, and I think when you, when you say agility or when, when I say it, what, what I mean is uh, the ability that it, it's much easier to change these virtual networks mm. than to get the networking team in to, say, uh, provision a VLAN provision a new on VLAN. a port, propagate it through the spanning tree. Sure. See, to me, that that was always the part of the Nicera story that made the most sense. So why 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 isn't it uh, working out well? Nobody believes it. I think. Oh. People are so used to being lied to by their upstream. You know, whether it's the reseller or the vendor, they just don't believe it. Okay. You know, vendor comes along and makes promises like, "Dear Mister," and I think there's also so th- so that's one part of it is a lack of trust in the supply chain, and that's something that you know that's years of. Um, coming that that's the past coming home to roost i think the second thing is that how far you have to change to take advantage of that agility so you know if i can provision a virtual firewall i can always just you know snapshot the firewall upgrade it and if it doesn't work roll it back well that's okay if you know virtualization but if the only thing you've ever known is physical firewalls you'll have no idea what i just said um You've got to change your help desk. You've got to change your your budgeting process. You've got to change your project management. I mean, ITIL project management doesn't even allow for doing things differently from the way you did it five years ago. So, and if you've got to go through change control and, you know, these sorts of... And enterprise IT, in my view, has been pretty stagnant for 20 years. The status quo is pretty much hasn't changed. We're still deploying three-tier apps they're still building, you know, data centers and expecting to hold on to those switching assets for a decade or more. They're still building out Wi-Fi networks and expecting the Wi-Fi base stations to last 10 years like the switches that were there before them. There's no, there's not actually a notion of change. It, they all talk about it. You know, all the vendors talk about innovation and change and digital transformation. But they're on the ground, you buy your SAP or your Oracle app you take five years to deploy it, and then you run it for 15 years. Nobody replaces their accounting system every other year, do they? Right? So when you come to them and say, we've got all this agility and speed, they're just looking at you going like, why would I need that? Okay. Right? So the- because nothing changes. Right. So the, the two, uh, the, the two uh, things working against it are that the uh, customers don't trust it uh, and there's resistance to change overall. Well, I think there's a, it's not so much that 
they don't trust what they're being told because they have a history of getting untrustable advice. Right. What or, I'd like to get into, though, yeah. is um, have, have you seen people try to use it? Does it work? I'm curious. Yeah, it does. Okay. Yeah, of course okay. it does. It, obviously, right? It's just so easy to get you know, a, 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 an overlay networking product and a vSwitch that has a firewalling function. The problem is, is that most people are still thinking of networking and servers as, you know, one plus one plus one plus one solution. What they don't seem to get is this, this controller, this software-defined idea, that if I put a controller in there, I don't actually care about one plus one plus one. I'm going straight to five. So I want to be able to configure... I want to be able to say this VM connects to this virtual switch. It has these firewalling security functions, and it connects to this microsegment, which is connected to these servers, which has this firewall and this logging engine. And this, I've presented this any number of times, and people just look at me and go, "That's great, Greg, but it'll never work for us." So you know, trying to convince people about SDN controllers has been really difficult. And in fact, I think it might change with software-defined WAN because. So, software defined in the data center, like I said, is the data center is actually not broken for most enterprises. They're five years away or ten years away from actually changing anything in the data center because they don't expect, you know, why would I go and slide a, an SDN solution in on, in the physical layer? Why wouldn't that doesn't fix anything? There's nothing broken. Where software defined WAN coming along has the promise of cutting like sixty percent, seventy percent out of your fixed WAN costs. Right, so you're the, the the rental of the bandwidth, in, and we've talked to companies, any number of them, interviewed them, you know, real people talk to real people, and they're saying, yeah, you know, thirty million, fifty million, eighty million cut out of the WAN budget. So you you'd you'd probably say then the network virtualization is kind of an up and coming success story in yeah. enterprise, especially in micro segmentation, mm-hmm. and that SD WAN solves a real problem, and, and therefore it's getting very popular. Yeah. It's a little less clear than that, right? The, the challenge here is, of course, that public cloud is using virtual switches. So the enterprise can't actually ignore them like it used to. So five years ago, enterprise IT just would have gone, no, 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 not listening, not listening, can't hear you. Show me that it works. You have to prove that it works. And it has to work at scale. Only when I see, IB, you know, when I see JP Morgan using virtual switches, then I'm going to use them. Remember, that was what always bubbles from the bottom up. Smaller, 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 little bigger, big, 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 in the middle, in the middle, bigger, 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 everybody buys it. And, and when you say J.P. Morgan, it's yeah. not just a random uh, example because the financials seem to be the, the big innovators. Yeah, well, they, yeah, they were. But then what we have now, of course, is Amazon, Google, Facebook, you know, the fan, you know, all of the cloud companies who basically just go, I don't care about the physical network. I'll just use a virtual switch and I'll start. And so all of a sudden, the thing that enterprises can't ignore is that this does work at scale. It's proven. So the flip side of it is they can't ignore it, but they actually don't have any... So they can't turn around and say, this is something that I don't want, if you know what I mean. They have to consider it and move towards it, but they don't have to, but only when they're ready. So uh, there, we, we've talked about network virtualization. Uh, we, we've talked about SD-WAN. Uh, the, the other thing that I just keep hearing over and over and over again in industry now is NFE, NFE, NFE. Yeah. Is this just a telco thing, or are enterprises starting to look at this too? I think it's mostly a telco thing. Okay. Right? Keep in mind that um, for telcos, they've got, like Verizon has 50,000 data centers, if you look at it from a V and NFE point of view. 
Does that make sense? Like mm-hmm. every one of those exchange buildings is effectively a little mini data center if I can move all of the physical appliances into software appliances. So in the past, they used to go and buy 3G appliances from Nokia or Ericsson or Cisco. And these were have just become x86 boxes. Many years ago, they were all highly customized. They would run custom CPUs with custom operating systems. And over the years, those things have converged around x86 and Linux and, you know, whatever. So the next generation, so 5G, they're talking entirely about x86, generic white box x86s in racks, in those pops, all the way up to the radio. So they're even talking about using software-defined radios to drive the antennas. They're already using software-defined radios. They're just not running them on x86s. They're running them on some arcane Nokia Ipso platform that nobody should ever have to a curse on their life. Like, like a curse on Nokia for producing that piece of rubbish, really. Um, so I think what we're going to see is they're going to prove out NFV in the same way. And I mean, cloud has already proved it out, but people don't think about it as a function. It comes back to this idea of one and one you know, this hop-by-hop idea, you know, server-by... You know, this idea of containers still hasn't dribbled down to the enterprise. You know, for all of the, you know, running around and going, oh, containers, so exciting, Kubernetes, ooh. The reality is is that, you know, the enterprise is going... Most people in the enterprise are going like, why would I turn it on to turn it off? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, they're used to, like, setting up an Oracle box and taking three years to deploy Oracle software on top of it. And that box has a backup, and you never test the backup because it might break because Oracle's failover is so unreliable. You never want to... Why would... you like? That's a transition from that thinking to this thinking. But I think the carriers have got right onto this because they've realised that... And actually, net neutrality is a real problem here from a business point of view. So what we're seeing in the carriers was they were saying, we have to reduce costs or we're not going to make any money because we can't charge more because the only thing we can sell is more bandwidth. So what we're going to do is we're going to go into our data, what's in our data, and look in those all those you know, exchanges, and they look at all the software that's routing the calls and the firewalls and the proxies and the logs and the billing engines and all that, and said, well, if we move them off all that custom hardware, put them into a VNF on an open stack or an o, you know, ONAP, as we call it, or CORD, um, then boom, I could get rid of all of this custom gear and it would all be easier and my cost of ownership would drop. So they're all over NFE because of that. Now, the challenge is, what happens if net neutrality comes in and they can actually charge more for the same bandwidth? All those projects might just stall because I don't actually have to spend money to save money to make money. I could just charge more and make more money. So That's an that's interesting point. I haven't yeah. heard anyone... Uh, uh, take net, net neutrality and say that it's related to, to CORD and ONAP and so on? Well, this is, why net, this is why they're forcing net neutrality, because they can actually cease allocating capital expenditure to networks. They can just charge more for the same level of service. I'm going to have to think about that. Because <laughs> that's what they're going to do. They're going to say, they're not going to go out there and build another better network and so offer you charge you more for a better level of service. What they're actually going to do is denigrate cheaper services. That would make sense. If you were, if you were the CEO of the company or the, the guy in charge of the budgets, if you could just make it worse for the cheaper packages and then charge more for the non-cheaper packages, that's what you would do. It costs you nothing. I guess I always assumed that was what they did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, the challenge, well, the thing that has been is we've seen, in terms of telcos, we've sort of seen them focus on scaling up the bandwidth. And... 
it really became a positive, you know, virtuous cycle where when you move from 100 meg to 1 gig, your internet gets 10 times faster, but everything just works better because it also reduces the duty cycle. So it's not, you know, the time taken for a wire to propagate, for a packet to traverse a 1 meg circuit, a 100 meg circuit, is 10 times quicker in a 100 gig. So the duty cycles increase, the bandwidth increases, the speed increases, and the backbone is effectively an unlimited amount of bandwidth. And so they were just spending more money lighting up extra lambdas, you know, connecting up extra fibers, changing out all the gear so they could just get more bandwidth. And if you could sell more bandwidth, you could make more money. Well, now all of a sudden they have no incentive to sell more bandwidth. They just want to sell the same bandwidth more expensively. And hence you're going to go down a pipeline. So, and that's only in the US, of course. So Europe and you know the Asia are all skewing ahead with high speed, just you know faster and faster and faster. Let's see. Um, we've we've been talking for a while. Maybe I could get in some some quick questions. Sure. I, I think I know the answers to some of these anyway. Does anybody use programmable uh, switches, uh, OpenFlow, P4, or anything like that? I think uh, I still think that OpenFlow is a winning answer. Not the OpenFlow API per se, but the idea of programming flows inside of devices, whether they're virtual switches or physical switches or firewalls or anything, is where we're going to end up. The problem is is that most people can't imagine programming flows. They just, or, or the software that we need to calculate the flow models don't seem to be there yet. Well, they shouldn't be. That, that's the assembly language of, uh, of network programming. No. They, they should be programming things at a higher level. Yes, but... Even, you know, you go and talk to people and say, well, why are you just using a destination-based flow? Why are you not using a source destination flow? And they say, well, we can't. And I go, why not? And they go, because BGP doesn't support it, right? So we end up with this really dumb idea that the only way we can calculate a path is by an MPLS tag or a destination subnet, which is... And that, of course, is exactly what SD-WAN doesn't do, right? Or any overlay networking solution. So um, I think OpenFlow or Flow-like programming with lots and lots of wildcard matches is something that's going to emerge as we get past the physical limitations of the hardware and we get past the software programming models. So things like P4 will start to provide abstractions so that flow programming becomes practical. I think, so P4, which is what you talked about, I think that's going to be big. That just um, feels... You know, every now and then I, I look at things. You know, when SDN and OpenFlow came out, it was the SDN I was all over and the idea of managing flows end-to-end that got me. That was right the way back in May 2011. And um, it just felt right. P4 feels right. And I was at Juniper last week and they're talking about adopting P4 and using it for theirs. So now all of a sudden I'm thinking to myself, customers can actually choose to write just for a few packets, just P4, which allows you to mangle IP in a way that you feel fit to do so. A lot of P4 feels like OpenFlow 2.0 to me. Like mm. it was uh, like OpenFlow was the first try, yeah. and uh, P4 got a lot of it right. I hadn't thought about it from that point of view. Yeah, okay. It's a little lower level. It, it has some important differences, mm. Um, mm. but I'm, I'm very happy with it as a, uh, as a, a developer. Okay. That kind of makes sense. I hadn't thought about that point, that angle. I, I'm mostly thinking about most people in networking still don't think about the, the TCP point, which is client to server. They still think about hop by hop by hop by hop and forget that there's actually a flow of packets backwards and forwards between two endpoints that is actually the service you're trying to deliver. Yeah? And so that was what 
I think is important. I don't think most people have come to the grips with what SDN means in terms of... So people have maybe got to grips with a controller on top of networking hardware or virtual, so you know the NSX controller on top of the vSwitch type stuff. But what we're starting to see emerge is SDN controllers federating left horizontally. So I'm now able to take my um, Riverbed SD-WAN controller and point it to my Z-Scaler or my Xerus SDN controller and integrate the two. And now all of a sudden I'm able to connect my client and my server. So I'm now going to have a you know, smart device, a smartphone on a Wi-Fi coming across my private WAN, hitting my SD-WAN, coming into my data center or coming into my public cloud and connecting to a micro-segment which I've programmed inside of Google, Google Cloud. And I can actually track that network path all the way from end-to-end. It's a lot of power. A lot of power. And the SDN control is not one tool managing all of that. It's SDN on top of that network, SDN on top of that network, SDN. And then all of those controllers talk to each other to have a unified orchestration between them. Mm-hmm. I call that federated SDN very as a sort of an abstracted concept. Sure. And, and so jumping to a, a different topic... Mm-hmm. Um, it, this might be too many layers down for you to really have an opinion, but what what should the virtual switches themselves be uh, be doing differently or better to better serve uh, the, the sorts of people you, you talk to, the sorts of people you work mm. for, enterprise customers? Maybe. So the challenge here is that the NIC, I think there's a whole bunch of things around who owns the NIC. Is it the networking person or is it the virtualization engineer or is it the cloud company? So what we're seeing emerging in clouds is that the virtual switches that we have in the clouds don't even get exposed to the customer. And so much so that they're now putting service proxies next to containers. So, um, you know, why would you suddenly put a a proxy instead of just talking to the NIC? Why wouldn't you talk to the virtual switch in your container or the virtual switch in your VM? But no, these people are actually spawning Kubernetes containers and then running a sidecar proxy, they call it, and running the packets through an Nginx proxy or a derivative of an Nginx proxy so that they can get visibility into the packet flow. It's like, what? Are you crazy? You know, like, but these people don't, you know, like this idea of attaching to the vSwitch hasn't occurred to developers. So that's one problem. What are we going to tell developers? You know, if only you could pull this API out of the open vSwitch in a multi-segmented, multi-tenanted way, then they wouldn't need to put a service proxy in and burn a whole second container for every container that they run, right? That's nuts to me. That is like, you know, I would normally put a tap, a visibility solution and pull a tap out of the network, you know, via a, a tap thing or and feed it into some device. But I certainly wouldn't put a device in to capture the packets to send them to the device, Right. It's, it's like, oh, my God, you know. Every container's got its own load balancer just so that it can get visibility. That's just nuts, right? So that's one thing. I think the second thing is we need to get network engineers thinking about the vSwitch as part of their network. So the physical network still exists. There are room, There is lots of room for integration of the virtual network to the physical network. I doubt it will ever happen, mainly because I can more easily apply bandwidth. So we're looking at, 10 gig switches, like most enterprises haven't even left one gig, much less gone to 10 gig, right? So asking them to start thinking about 25 gig, 50 gig NICs in a server with a 200 gig slash 400 gig backbone is like, you know, pow, exploding, exploding, you know, that's just not. So 
And so then talking to them about smart necks. So, you know, these companies that make these necks that have... Uh, so one of them has got an, an ARM CPU on board, I think, with 64 cores or 128. Uh, you might be thinking of the Netronome next. Yeah, Netronome, and then also Mellanox has one. They've got an FPGA and an ARM on it. They've got, and then there's a bunch of them, right? Right, they, there's, there's Cadmium, there's Mellanox, Broadcom, Netronome. Yeah, yeah and others, mm-hmm. right? And those NICs can, you know, take a virtual switch and power it up to some... You know, astonishing, and they're not that expensive, right? They're not thousands; they're hundreds, right? At um, scale, well, you know. and and many of them uh, um, come with Open VSwitch right on them from the manufacturer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, <laughs> plug, plug. Nice one, Ben. Nice one. Um, so I do sort of think, you know, we need to start talking to well developers about smart NICs and the value of them. Now, the cloud vendors know, like Amazon bought Annapurna to get their version of an accelerated NIC, and they continue to iterate the silicon that they got when they acquired that smart NIC vendor. But there's lots of other ones that can just, you know... And in in the open vSwitch, there's this mind-blowingly amount of power that you... So all of a sudden, firewalling becomes non-disruptive, non-power consumptive, you know, or if you want to do full P4 packet mangling at 100 gigabits per second, no problem, right? That sort of stuff. That's in your server, right? Uh... But so where does that come out? So if you want to expand that, when, when could that happen? Let's think about that. So the question is, how many companies are going to move into the cloud and go, ooh, and they're going to be tourists. They're going to go, ooh, it's nice to visit, but I wouldn't want to live here, right? You, you sort of look around and it's like, you know, you go on a holiday to, you know, pick your favorite destination, Bali, and you're living in a five-star hotel. It's, it's wonderful. And then you realize that you're actually spending $2,000 a week to stay in your five-star hotel. That's wonderful, right? And then you think, actually, it's not so great. It's expensive, and but it's fun to visit, but maybe I'll go home, right? The Motel 6 down the, down the street has free Wi-Fi. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it, how everyone stays in hotels, but everybody owns a house, right? <laughs> and so there's this sort of emerging thought that I have about the public cloud is going to be a bit like, you know, a Hilton hotel. It's lovely. It's on demand, fully serviced. Someone changes the sheets every day. They clean the room. You've got the concierge downstairs to get your cocaine and hookers. You know, all the stuff that you need in a modern hotel. But really, we all own our houses and we live far more modestly and practically because a full service experience is uh, uh, unrealistic. And we've seen plenty of companies go into the public cloud and then move out to the private cloud. So the question is... If we could have open vSwitch, virtual NICs, hardware accelerated NICs on infinite bandwidth, right? If you dropped a 200 gig, 100 gig backbone in, you know, let's say, let's say you take a pair of 100 gig switches, like a pair of Tomahawk 3s, 32 ports of 100 gig, right? So that means you can connect 32 servers, dual home them, one on each switch, two switches, 32 servers, 32 servers, let's run 20 VMs per server. Well, that's 600 VMs. You could easily run 100 VMs on 32 servers and get 3,000 VMs. Just how many customers have 6,000 VMs? Not many. So you really don't need, you know, and if it's 100 gig, there's no drops. So you don't need hardware, virtual software. The only people who need overlay integration with the physical ones is the cloud companies. Well, okay, when you scale up, you start incurring extra costs a la the Hilton, right? If you've got to maintain a high quality, you have to rotate the furniture every two years so the bed doesn't get a bow in the middle, right? Blah, blah, blah. So 
Um, I think we're going to see most people go into the public cloud, re-engineer, learn cloud principles, and then start to deploy it back. When will that happen? When we start to see the legacy IT vendors build hyper-converged platforms running things like OpenShift, right? And you won't even know it's OpenShift. It'll just be a private cloud and clicky-clicky and here's an, here's an ES, here's a VM, here's a storage, here's a, here's a connection to the internet. There's my public IP. Boom. I like your prediction. I'll have yeah. to uh, keep watching for this. Yeah. I think now it's also possible that our incumbent vendors, you know, the Dells and the HPs and the Cisco's of this world, completely fail to make that transition. And if that's the case, then everything will be in the public cloud and everybody will be living in a Hilton hotel. And that makes me sad. <laughs> you know, because you'll be spending a lot of money on But I think the private cloud will always be around. But there has to be a modernization. We have to walk away from, you know, the mainframe idea of a network switch, which has an op- apps operating system and hardware is fully integrated. Like, yeah. All right. Thank you for all your insight. So uh, we're kind of coming to the, the end of the, the, the length I usually give these things. Uh, is, is there anything uh, you want to add before we uh, start finishing up? No, I, I like Open vSwitch. I actually follow along. I do listen to your shows. By oh, the way. wow. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be at a 1.5 speed, so maybe I'm not fully engaged, but it, you know, I do track what's happening in Open Research. So, you know, excellent work keeping it going, by the way. Oh, thank it's, you. It's really fantastic. Um, and I actually think, you know, with, you know, coming back to where we talked about, did we talk about the Broadcom open sourcing their SDK today? Uh, we did not. Right? So, uh, literally, some more time this week, Broadcom announced a press release that they're open sourcing their SDK, which is incredibly exciting. Because, it, it's very exciting. Right? And maybe we should talk about that. What does it mean? Well, we'll talk about it on my show. We're gonna, I'm now going to interview Ben on the Packet Pushes podcast, and maybe I'll ask him about it there. But it's very exciting because all of a sudden, you can start putting OVS on top of Broadcom Silicon and pull directly into that for wire speed. OVS. I'm, I'm excited too. <laughs> but, you know, all the other things, you know, please just, if you're listening to this, just keep an open mind. Remember that developers don't necessarily talk to server people, don't necessarily talk to networking people. That's just the way things are. And a lot of the time networking people are distant because the data center doesn't matter. I don't know how many people realize that. And getting the networking person to engage in the data center it may be difficult because he's actually putting out fires somewhere else he's not ignoring you and anything he does is he hates you because he's you're making him do more work so all right thanks a lot for those uh, parting thoughts uh, do you want to tell people how they can find out to uh, find you and find oh, out more about your podcast sure you can find us at packetpushes.net and if you're interested in following me you can i'm on twitter as at ethereal mind that's e-t-h-e-r-e-a-l-m-i-n-d um and and sure tune on in we uh I try not to take things too seriously and have a laugh every now and then, so maybe, maybe you'd be interested in that. Lots of networking podcasts and stuff there, packetpushes.net. Thanks a lot. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons attribution unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org or for more information about Open vSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.